Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Women's History. My name is Hannah Smith, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Marilyn J. Westerkamp about her book, The Passion of Anne Hutchinson, An Extraordinary Woman, The Puritan Patriarchs, and the World They Made and Lost. Dr. Westerkamp is a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. I was wondering if we could start uh, just with you telling us a bit about what led you to this topic, uh, why Anne Hutchinson and the Puritans. Well, the Puritans have fascinated me forever, um, since I was an undergraduate. And Anne Hutchinson, I got pulled in her direction because of the odd things that she did, um, things that didn't make sense to me. Uh, if we have a person here who is as smart as she seemed to be, um, and as clever, and assuming that she did not have a death wish, then the question becomes why she spoke as she did. Um, part of the problem in working with Anne Hutchinson is that she left no papers. She left no letters. She didn't have, if she had a journal, nobody kept it or saved it. And so all we have, all we know about her thoughts are what other people recorded. And most of the recordings were done by people who disliked her or who were radically opposed to her. And I would argue who, um, in some cases, deliberately misrepresented her. So that when I looked at my, my, the big question that I began with, with the Puritans, is, um, as we say, why did she say it? Um, and the it, for those we know, there's a, in a trial, there are a couple of trials transcripts. And in both cases, People ask her um, how she knows that God had chosen her, and she says, um, by an immediate revelation. And so that becomes a key around which all kinds of arguments about Hutchinson are made. Um, and what is very interesting about this, as I, as I looked into the sources and stuff, is that you know Winthrop said, and he wrote this thing called a short story, um, to... Um, 10 years after the events, um, sort of defending the Puritans. And what he said is that, you know, once she said that, she had condemned herself and they were done. But, you know, if you look at the transcripts, after she said that, they're talking for hours afterwards. And they're having arguments. And they're arguing about the nature of revelation and what it means. And so you think, well, maybe it wasn't accepted. Maybe she hadn't condemned herself. So why did she say what she said? Um, and I asked this question, and um, someone said, well, maybe she thinks it's true. I thought, okay. And then I thought about that for a while and said, but that still doesn't answer the question. Um, why did she say it? She may have thought it was true, but if everybody's going to hate her and dislike her for it, if they're going to use that against her, why did she say it at all? And aside from you know, uh, thinking in terms of it's a moment of theater, 
um, that that other that a couple of historians actually talk about, you know, law as theater and law as performance. I thought, so this is a theater, this is a performance, what is she performing? And what we actually see here is that it begins to become clear that a lot of people believed her. Um, there are a whole slew of people in Boston that believed her, that believed she was receiving revelations. And I thought, this is what this is about, um, that people believed her. Because you, know, you say, why is she a threat? Why this? Why that? What does it matter if, she's con- if she is criticizing ministers? She's a woman, for Lord's sake. Who cares? And yet it mattered. So you know, how does a woman create that much in a society which claims that women you know, have no authority, that claims that women are um, really underneath men? And uh, why does she have this kind of power? And it is that people believed that she received revelations um, and that it was possible to receive them. And so I, once I got to that point, um, I started sort of pulling it all apart. And the Puritans, who I, who I actually always thought was interesting, which is kind of a peculiar aspect of me, um, but I began to see they really are interesting. It's not just that they have this system and then they go around, you know, setting everything in boxes. They actually are trying to set up, decide what their box is at the time that she is saying these things. And many people thought that she was right. I mean, thought that she was having revelations. The, va- the fact that so many people, I mean, they kicked a lot of people out. Um, they, you know, before, when if you look at the, the road up to her trial, they tried all these other people first, or they, you know, they disfranchised her followers. They disarmed them. In some cases, they banished them before her, before she came to trial. So I thought, well, if they are disarming and banishing all these powerful men before she comes to trial, so she does have, and she did have a very powerful following. And they go, and then she's tried. So she has very few defenders left in the court by the time she is tried. And and then they keep her there. Then I think the mean thing that they did is they, they kept her there. They said it was so that she wouldn't have to travel in the winter. Um, but they kept her there under house arrest um, in the home of a clergy person. And then all they did was natter at her for days and weeks until they got her into all kinds of weird conversations. And then they tried her before the church, um, apparently for heresy, but for all kinds of other things. And then they excommunicated her. And then she left Massachusetts. So they made sure that they had dismissed her and punished her in every way they could. Um, and then they, sh- they sent her out. But it's that dynamic that really pulled me in. And I began to ask the question of Revelation. What do they believe about Revelation? Who could receive Revelation? And what actually, how do women actually have power in a society which claims that they have no power? And that's when I began to unravel the story, as you've seen, all the way back to the last years of Henry VIII's reign and all the way forward past the English Civil War um, to see what is happening with this very dedicated, eccentric, but multivocal community and their relationship with women. And their relationship, and it has to do with, and their relationship with the divine, and I, that's what became really interesting. Great. Um, I think on that note, perhaps before we go any further, I think Anne Hutchinson is one of those women 
that uh, anyone who's taken any sort of early American history class, we've heard the name. Um, but perhaps if it's been a while for some of us, we might have forgotten uh, exactly what she was doing and what got her in trouble. Um, so just so uh, our listeners are all on the same page, could you refresh our memories on who Anne Hutchinson was and what she did? Why, why has she been remembered? Well, she is in the first, um, in the uh, imperial colonization of North America, sort of the second wave of, of colonials come to an area broadly defined as New England. First, there's a small group that comes to Plymouth, and then there's, excuse me, a larger group that comes into Massachusetts. Um, during this period of time, I mean, and they're also peculiar in terms of colonialism. Um, it's also why they're very interesting, because they come in waves. They come in families. Um, you know, when you go to Virginia, it's mostly young men who are coming or, you know, coming there to find work or to, to escape before they're hanged. Um, and they're sort of struggling. They have a difficult time getting women to go to Virginia. But in Massachusetts, they're coming as families. So when you look at the lists of people disembarking from ships, they've, they've brought their, you've got men as, as old as in their 50s. Um, which is very old in this period. They've they've brought their wives. They've brought their uh, all of their children. They've brought their servants. Sometimes they've brought their uh, single, their all of their dependents, like uh, sisters and things. They've brought their servants. So they come in households like fifteen um, or twenty that they that they arrive in. It's it's usually not that um, spectacular. But the Hutchinson family when they arrived. I think had 15 people with them because Hutchinson had a lot of children and some of their children were adults and those children came with their own families and then there were unattached women and there were servants. And so when I think one of the figures that I came to is when they arrived in 1634, which is only four years after the first settlement, they probably increase the population of Boston by 10 to 20%. I mean, you know, it's a very small, it's not a very large place. At the time that the Hutchin, Hutchinson controversy occurs, there are maybe 500 people in Boston total. And if you think about all of these people, and 20 of them are Hutchinsons, um, it gives you a sense of just how a single family can impact. So they come and they're following, according to the stories told, and we have, I don't have reasons to doubt it, um, but a lot of it feels apocryphal. She is the she's she's the driving religious leader in the family, and everybody you know because they because historians follow Winthrop, and I can talk about that. They follow him without ever questioning him. But you know, and he makes William Hutchinson sound like a wuss, um, very weak, um, totally following his wife. He wasn't. He was a very powerful man. He was a very wealthy merchant. When the Hutchinsons arrived in Boston, they were given a huge plot of land. They lived like catty-cornered from the uh, from the Winthrops, who was governor of Massachusetts. So he, you know, so he was a wealthy, um, affluent person. His family was powerful, and she was within this world as well. But she is the one that had this religious focus, and she's the daughter of a minister, uh, in um, a minister who was in constant trouble in England. Uh, that was France. Her father was Francis Marbury. Uh, he doesn't, we are not sure whether he identified as Puritan or not, but he was always in trouble because he kept criticizing the church. 
Um, they weren't, it wasn't an educated clergy. That was his big thing, that people, the ministers were not knowledgeable. They, and so he would say these things out loud and then he would be locked up and things. And he actually spent most of his time not having a pulpit because he made trouble until the last decade of his life, which was 16, the 1610s, uh, no, the, first, the 1600s. And in that decade, he's one of the very few clergymen of this sort of dissenting group who had never criticized the king and had never criticized the English church for theology. And so he then suddenly got positions. But mostly by that time, his daughter was an adult and she married William Hutchinson, but she had brought, I mean, she had all of this theological knowledge. We don't know how knowledgeable she was, except when we read accounts of what she said. And she seems to know a lot and she seems to be very, uh, you know, very good at thinking through, uh, theological problems she had her she had herself when her she and her husband lived in east um the eastern area of england lincolnshire which was a huge puritan stronghold in england and among the ministers what people did among these these groups is they found ministers that appealed to them um and so they they didn't want to go to the they frequently didn't want to go to the church in their area but they, if they did that, they also sort of, sort of swirled around other ministers that were, that were more sympathetic to the kinds of arguments they made. And she, and she had looked and she did this, and she had taken a shine to a minister named John Cotton. And Cotton was very, I mean, he was extraordinarily um, intelligent. He was a very sophisticated, maybe sophisticated disorder, a sophisticated theologian a highly read, um, intellectually uh, progressive theologian, wrote a lot um, and apparently was success, must have been a successful preacher because he was very, very well-known and popular. And she would drive, she, her, she and her family would drive to his church, it was like 20 miles away. Um, it couldn't have happened every Sunday, but she was quite attracted to him. And he moved to Massachusetts. And he moved in 1633, and then she, I think she said they should follow him. And so she followed John Cotton. Now, people did this during this time. Um, it's been, many people have been unable to imagine that this is so, but when we've had people, historians have tested this, uh, uh, the question of whether they actually came here for religious reasons. And that is, there's a lot of evidence that, indicates they they actually did that. I mean they were following their following uh following sometimes following ministers, often trying to leave Massachusetts before they got picked up, um, before they ended up in jail or got fined. Um many of them were afraid that Massachusetts was doing so badly in their relationship or I'm sorry, that England was doing so badly in their relationship with God that God was just gonna, you know, rain, hellfire, and brimstone down on them. So they wanted to get out before that happened. Um, and so that, you know, in this apocryphal moment, you had people coming to Massachusetts in, for all kinds of religious reasons, and she was in that crew, right? So she comes, and she's a follower of John Cotton, who is like a rock star among ministers. I mean, he's one of the most famous ministers that are here. And as her relationship in the community develops, she begins to be admired and respected as a leading, as a spiritual leader. A lot of the women think she's wonderful. 
And apparently, from what people said, and these are all her enemies, they said she was very helpful to women. Um, she encouraged them. She led them spiritually. Um, she was helpful in the birthing chamber. Um, that might have been be overstated. We don't have a lot of evidence of that. But once again, people saying that she is, um, even John Winthrop admits it in his story, that she was helpful to women. And John Cotton certainly says that she had been very helpful to women. So here is this person who is prominent in the community. She is in her 40s. So that early 40s, so that she is at the age where she would be a leading matron. Um, and she begins to hold spiritual meetings in her house. This is not a new thing. Everybody talks about this as if it's some kind of um, innovation. It's not. In England, they did this all the time because they didn't like the ministers that they went to see. So they held, you know, their own meetings. And so she held meetings in her house for women. And apparently word got out and men started coming. People's husbands started coming. And she had so many people that it was said that she had 60 to 80 people meeting in her house every week. And again, that is, I don't know, that's a huge percentage of the adult population in Boston, right? Um, so she has all of these people there. And initially she is explaining the difficult points of the sermon. Then she starts retelling the sermon. Then she starts giving her own sermons and critiquing other ministers' sermons. And all of this, and we, you know, all of this is hearsay. And, but then her followers actually go out and start heckling other ministers and start using what they've learned in these groups to criticize their own ministers. And this is what, what makes everybody mad, um, that this is the direction they've gone in. It takes a long time for the community to begin to believe that she is a problem. Um, and there are a couple of things that set it off. One of the things is that John Wilson, who was supposedly the head, who was, I shouldn't say, shouldn't say supposedly, who was the primary pastor of the Boston church. And I don't know how he, he would not have been appointed primary pastor had John Cotton been there, but he wasn't. Wilson was there first and he was the primary pastor, but his wife was not there. She didn't want to come to Massachusetts. And so the community sent him back saying, you have to bring your wife. You cannot be here by yourself. So he's gone off um, his second effort to try and get his wife to come. John Cotton has already been appointed teacher of the Boston church. But while Wilson is gone, he's in charge. And so while he's in charge, this is when Hutchinson is beginning to give, you know, have spiritual meetings and help people there. And everything is fine. And everybody's happy. And then Wilson comes back and they, she starts criticizing Wilson. Um, and, you know, her followers are criticizing other people. Um, at the same time, a man named Henry Vane has come to the Massachusetts and he is the highest ranked person that arrived, right? He's in the aristocracy. Um, almost no one is in the aristocracy in Massachusetts, but he is. And I'm sorry to say he's like 22 years old, but because he's in the aristocracy and because the people are kind of fed up with Winthrop for reasons known only to themselves, um, I do know the reasons, but that would take us too long. Um, he gets elected governor and he's a follower of Hutchinson. So, so he's a really highly ranked follower of Hutchinson and everybody's sort of flocking to him and Winthrop, I'm sure, is quite put out about this whole thing. Although he ends up being 
deputy governor. So you can see he's getting, he was out for three years in this third year, he's getting his power back. So if you see that Winthrop is mad because he wasn't governor and the ministers are mad because Hutchinson's crew is criticizing all of them, then you have this, the growing tension here and they begin to, Winthrop begins to figure out and there's all kinds of plotting that goes on. And first thing you do, he plots himself back into the governorship. There's all kinds of shenanigans that happen. Um, they move the election. They don't wait for Bostonians to arrive. Um, and so the, he's elected governor without the consent of the Bostonians. And we know this because when he returns to Boston, uh, the color guard won't go with him. Um, the people who are who had been from Boston in the administrator's offices, they're all kicked out. Um, so you go through, there's all of these things that work through. And Hutchinson is see, sort of sitting at the center. Now, one of the things that you see in the history that's written about this period or this these events is that they talk. They begin by talking about Hutchinson, and that the it's called the antinomian crisis for a because of a theological point that I think is not really valid. But it, you know, they're focused on the theology, and they end up talking about the men. And so you get you get these books about the antinomian crisis, and then we suddenly are talking about John Winthrop and John Cotton and John Wilson, and let's not forget, you know. Uh, Henry, you know, Henry Vane, and let's not forget all the, you know, Hugh Peters, who is mad about things. Don't, don't forget any of these ministers. And Hutchinson sort of slips aside until suddenly she becomes important again when they're going to kick her out. And so she becomes the single figure around which a lot of people have organized. This is a long answer to the questions you asked, but a lot of people have organized around her. Um, and so she has been remembered throughout history um, as, you know, and she's, uh, people, they call her all kinds of things. They've called her a feminist, a proto-feminist, um, fighting for women's rights. I don't think so. Fighting for, you know, all kinds of things. She's not fighting for any of that. She's just, you know, fighting to worship God the way she sees it and to lead people in this worship and to warn them that what they're doing is not good. And she does warn them what they're doing is not good. And she sounds just like John Cotton when she is saying these things to the extent that when they're talking about, you know, when they, after she says, I, I, you know, through the revelation, a direct revelation from God, an immediate revelation and some, and Winthrop asked John Cotton. So is she, is this, do you believe in this revelation or is she deluded? And he says, well, it depends on what kind of revelation she's thinks she's receiving. You know, there's one kind that would be a delusion, but there's another kind that reflects the providence of God. And if it's that kind of revel, of a revel, uh, revelation, then she, I would argue that she would be receiving it, but we would need to know. So what kind of, what do you think of it? And then he goes on and does this again until Thomas Dudley, who had been, who was an important, but not real bright leader of this group says, I'm having problems with John Cotton. Maybe we should think about what John Cotton is saying. Here and Winthrop, you can hear like this panic saying, "Enough, John Cotton is not on trial here. We're not talking about that. Let's go back to and though the, the conversation about Revelation stops, um, it stops cold in this examination, and it, then you suddenly have three ministers who raise their hands and say, "I'll testify to um, to her sedition. I'll testify to her criticism." So what you have are people who are her accusers and her judges. Um, and then she is banished for that, um, for basically criticizing the leaders. 
But this is what this is sort of why she stands out is that she she from what I can tell she like brought them to her knees. Um, every time they bring this accusation against her, she says, "Okay, if you say that, I'll stop. I won't do it anymore." And then they can't. You know, it's like he has to kick her out, and he can't figure out how to do it. Um, and she does give him the ability to do that. But one of the things that happens here is that she becomes a marker as 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 the Puritans live in New England, and they are really very, um, they become increasingly inflexible and narrow. Um, and they punish everybody who, they, they penalize people who don't follow their way. Even other Puritans, I would say, who but who have different attitudes. Um, and they call people to account. Um, this gets worse and worse. They, you know, they ended up when Quakers come um, and the Quaker community develops, they, they torture and then hang Quakers. Um, and so all of this um, grows and is increasing the, the the inflexibility, our understanding of the inflexibility, rigidity of the Puritans. And by the time you get to to you know, as this goes forward, people are remembering who they are and they are reinventing who they are and constructing who they are. We don't like them; they're nasty. They sh- we should ignore them. And Hutchinson becomes like a marker for all of this for people. And so um, at the end of the 18th century, when you have the first, well, I shouldn't say, the first histories about the Puritans are written like 20 years after they've been there. Uh, you have to real, you have to get your mind around people who are so self-important. They write a history of themselves before they're dead. Um, you know, because this, this early history um, is written, is published in 1656, 58. You know, this is, and she's there. And then you have the histories written um, then you have histories being written until you get Cotton Mather, grandson of John Cotton, who writes this massive history of New England. Again, we're so important. We have to write our history now. You know, they write everything down. They save everything that they wrote, which is why it's interesting that they there's nothing that Hutchinson wrote that is saved. Um, but as they go through and this focus on their history, uh, by the time you get to we have a, a history of Massachusetts written by Thomas Hutchinson, who was governor of Massachusetts during the revolution um, or the road up to the revolution. He too was on the wrong side. He was a loyalist, uh, but he wrote this history that included his uh, grandsire and Hutchinson in which he, he never names her, but he says, but you know, fortunately she was silenced and everything went forward. But you know, you begin to see, Oh, that's really interesting. And then in the 19th century, and everybody's sentimental and everybody is embarrassed because they are descended from Puritans, especially Nathaniel Hawthorne, who had the bad luck to be descended from a Salem judge who never was sorry. Now, lots of judges were sorry really quickly. He was never sorry. So Hawthorne, you know, writes a lot of things against Puritans um, in his own sweet way. Uh, everybody knows Scarlet Letter, but there's other things that is, are there. And he also wrote a thing about Anne Hutchinson and what a glorious light she was to everyone. But his description of her is is not what we understand. And then you go forward and look at the 19th century historians. And one historian said that, um, compared her to Descartes. You know, she's like Descartes. You know, what? What? You know, and someone else, they're all praising her and going, you know, throughing this. Um, and then we, and then you get to the early 20th century, and we get to the writing of, and this is one of my favorite things, which 
I talk about in the uh, in the epilogue to the book, um, an historian who says, "I cannot believe that in this tricentennial of Boston, and this is actually what marks it in the tricentennial of Boston, there are three biographies written of Anne Hutchinson, and nobody is writing a biography about you know name that leader about John Winthrop, about John Cotton, about you know." Nobody is writing about these incredible leaders. They're writing, they're all writing about Anne Hutchinson, which is very interesting considering, as I've said, there are like almost no documents about Anne Hutchinson. And so that's sort of the, the, what, what is interesting in terms of people's memory. When I, you talk to people, I know that um, in my own you know, myopic world, everybody knows about New England. I discover more and more that like nobody knows about New England um, out here in California. But one of the things that, if people know anything about early Massachusetts, they know Anne Hutchinson. They don't know John Winthrop. They don't know John Cotton. They don't know any of these important, I mean, especially Winthrop, who was central in constructing this community and building. I mean, he, he was sacrificial. He used his own money to pay for things, to feed people, to make sure everything was successful. He's always out there negotiating. And they don't know about him. They only know about Hutchinson. That is, I think, very interesting to me that they know about this woman who, and they, they know, everybody knows the wrong things about her. And she's called all different name, things, which she was not, but it misses what she actually was, which is a dedicated um, religious Christian um, who obviously had a charismatic gift and was followed by many, many people um, and who, who, were, who worked with her. And so it's that, so that, that's who she was. And that's also part of why she's interesting. And the, the fact that she is remembered and thought of, that she becomes the subject of children's, of biographies written for children, not John Winthrop, is a very interesting thing that goes on as well. Um, thank you. I'd like to go back uh, for a moment to the moment of the uh, the moment of the trial and Winthrop and the other leaders. Um, you note uh, in your book that the move to disempower Hutchinson uh, shows that the men in power in Massachusetts at this time were leading a less than stable church and state and yes. were looking to legitimate uh, their authority. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the state of the church in New England in this period and why they were in a tricky situation? All right. Um, this is part of the theoretical framework that I worked with. Um, and it has to do with what I was searching for and what I think sits at the center of my larger, the larger argument of the book. And that is that I found that women are actually really important to the pre-Orton community in the long run. In the 16th century, they are, um, A, they're in, they're in part, they're important communicators and connectors. In part, nobody tracks women. They all worry about men, but they don't track women. And so these women carry messages, they deliver messages, and in many cases, they become financial supporters of these ministers. Um, they support publications. Um, and a lot of what the Puritans publish in the 16th century, they are publishing overseas. The Netherlands becomes a place that you can purchase, that you can publish books. And the women um, are really central to this dissenting community. Um, we call them Puritans. They never called themselves that. Um, but if you think of them as dissenters from the 
main of the state church, whatever that was. And they are in the early, early period, one of the primary groups of dissent is led by Catherine Parr, a wife of Henry VIII. And, you know, you, so you have this, this group built around her. And if you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, he actually names many women who were executed as um, dissenters who refused to recant, who refused to um, become or to, to return to the Roman Catholic Church. In this, though, as we look through this, um, so you find this centrality of women. And I began to say, so, you know, this culture appealed to women. It, you know, why? Um, it appeals to them in part because they are, they're, they're seeing themselves as being in touch with God. Um, they're seeing themselves as finding a pathway through into their own spirituality. And then what I, I started watching for women leaders and what I've, everybody said that Anne Hutchinson, the literature always says Anne Hutchinson was unique. And the first thing I learned is that she is not unique. There were lots of women who were preachers um, and lots of women who were believed. And many of them in England were, but if you look for where they are in England, it's in the 1640s and 50s, which is you know a decade later than Hutchinson. But what I found, what I have argued is that in a place in a cultural space where there is no clear authority, where there is no, which is essentially unstable um, because there is, there's no authority, there's no lines of structure, nothing is, is, uh, is understood to be accurate, no, and where people are really concerned about how things are organized or, or they're concerned for order, looking for a concept, lo looking for structures of order. When you have order, People know their place and people are kept in their place. But what happens if you don't have order? Um, and this is where you have um, what, are, what I call liminal spaces, what the literature um, calls liminal spaces, spaces that with permeable boundaries, where people who normally are not allowed to be in a position of authority suddenly are. And so the space is open not only for women preachers and leaders, but also for uh, lower class and what? Working class is, is sort of a misnomer right now, but people who are at these lower levels, they're not in the gentry. Um, they're not highly educated, but there's space for, for those individuals, men and women, to move up and, be, and become leaders. And this is what I found that was so interesting, that the Puritan culture, in the way it's organized about um, openness to the Holy Spirit and openness to God and, and let God come, come, in, come to you, and speak to you, there is space for people who don't have power to move into power if, they ha if they're gifted, if they have spiritual gifts, say, if they have intellectual gifts. And so I identified all these women who were preaching in Civil War England. And then, you know, what does Civil War England have in common with 1630s Massachusetts? They're both unstable. They're both in process. Um, embryonic communities. You know, once Massachusetts gets itself organized, then it knows what to do. And suddenly, if you are a preaching woman, as happens in Massachusetts at the end of the 1650s and the 1660s, they know what to do with you. They lock you up and they tell you to stop, you know, and, you know, and before, and they do this before anybody can hear you talk. Actually, they're, they're not real successful. That I mean, people do manage to hear them, <laughs> even though they have locked them up. Yeah. But the Quaker women arrive in the late 1650s and they, 
arrest them off the boat. They know who they are. They know what they're going to do. And they lock them up, even when they're wrong. You know, somebody comes just to settle a debt of her husband's after her husband has died. Somebody comes, that's this Mary Dyer, who had been a follower of Hutchinson, which is interesting. But she just lands in Boston on her way home. She lives in Rhode Island. Nope, they lock her up. You know, it's this. Nope, we're not, you know, we now know what to do. We don't move, have any space. Um, they still prove to be not very good at managing Quakers because Quakers are much more assertive than Hutchinson was. You know, they told her to leave and she left. They tell Quakers to leave and they come back. I mean, this is, you know, sort of who they are and what they do. But, but it's this, and I would argue, I do argue, although many historians disagree with me, I believe that Quakers are a natural, I think they're, a segment of Purit of Puritans. Um, that is, they're people who believe in this direct connection with God. Um, they don't think um, they, but they don't think learning matters, and that's why they're different from the Puritans. They they don't think it matters if you are educated. They don't think it matter. Their status doesn't matter. Um, all people are equal before God, and what else matters? I mean, that's their position. That's their theology, um, and so God can gift anybody. Um, and this is the Puritans are not quite there. But of course, one of the reasons that in Massachusetts they're not there is because you have guys in charge now. And these guys want to remain in charge. You know, in the six, in 1600, nobody in this group was in charge. They're all busy being dissenters. And they all have something in common, which is that they dislike the Anglican Church. They dislike the bishops. They dislike, you know, and so when you have this, that's what they have in common. And they don't have to figure out what they don't have in common. Um, but, you know, in Massachusetts, suddenly they're in charge. You know, we are the state church. And so what do we, what is the state church? What is orthodoxy? And you have to figure that out. And you don't, you know, and everybody thinks that you have orthodoxy and then you have heresy, but it's the opposite. You create orthodoxy by creating heresy. Um, this is heretical. And so orthodoxy is not this. And that's the dynamic that you see happening in Massachusetts. And Hutchinson is the most, one of the more strident examples of this. Um, Roger Williams was there. They, everybody liked him because he was so charming. And so he also was part of establishing orthodoxy. Oh, but there are others, you know, that they, um, you know, there were a group of people who decided, um, who became op opposed to infant baptism. Um, you know, the, the, the origins of the Baptist community in North America. Well, that was not good. They have to leave. Um, you know, and one of those was an aristocratic woman which was difficult enough. The other, another one was like the president of Harvard. Um, I don't think it was called Harvard yet, but the president of their university. Well, he, they had, he had the leaf too. I mean, so this is, again, you have this, that's why I say you have this community that's not stable yet. Um, they don't know quite what their order is. Um, and as they establish their order, they establish their order in part by kicking people out of it. Um, and that's, so that's the dynamic you have in Massachusetts, and at the same, it's the same dynamic that you had in England in the 1640s and 50s. Um, and when you have that going on, there's space for all kind of people to be who they are um, and to lead communities. And then once you get everything comes orderly again, then those people can then be controlled. So that's a very that becomes a very interesting dynamic that's there. Um, another question about uh, Winthrop and the choices he made around the trial. Um, I noticed uh, throughout the book, a particular quote from the trial comes up a, a few times, and it's uh, when Winthrop says, uh, 
We are your judges and not you ours, and we must compel you to it. Um, can you tell us about the significance of that quote to your argument and why you kept returning to it throughout the book? Well, it becomes, for Winthrop, an unanswerable argument, and it's an, it's an argument that comes out of order. Um, it, it, there's no, you know, he, it's, it's a something that he says when he doesn't have any intellectual argument to make. He doesn't have any biblical argument to make. That's what he wants to do. He, he wants us to, to argue theologically, you're wrong. Um, God doesn't like this. Uh, this is, but, you know, and so he tries to, he tries to invoke, um, you know, he's not a trained theologian. He's an educated man, but he's educated as lay men among Puritans are. Um, so he knows, he has some theology. He's very, these people are all very knowledgeable of the Bible, which is to say that they can quote it um, without any worries. But he really can't, he's not sophisticated theologically. And you can see that in some of the way that's ways that he operates. You know, he is not, when John Cotton starts going on about the nature of revelation, most of the people, most of the men uh, who are not ministers are at sea here. You know, how else can Thomas Studley say, I begin to wonder what Thomas, what John Cotton is talking about. Well, John Winthrop does know that he doesn't understand what John Cotton is talking about. But we're not going to argue about that because the ministers have to argue about that, and they are at odds with John Cotton. Um, but Winthrop says we're not we're not talking about Cotton, you know, because that would be a disaster um, if we went against John Cotton. So we're just going to put that aside. What Winthrop is good at is the politics of it. Um, it would be very bad if John Cotton decided to leave Massachusetts, which he actually thinks about doing, um, and Winthrop really goes out of his way to keep him there. But it's this you know, we are your judges and not you ours. And so we say, stop this. That's an argument that comes out of politics. It comes out of order because we're in charge and you need to. And so we say, stop. What kind of an argument is that? You know, that's a very base. That's a very basic argument that parent, a parent gives to a child, a parent gives to a four-year-old when nothing you say will convince, because you can't argue with a four-year-old at the level that you want to argue. Um, you know, you cannot go into the street because you get run over by a car. But there is no car out there. You can't go, but but there could be a car. There is no car out there. Why do I have to knock on the street? The ball ran into the street. Why? You know, because I said so. I mean, this is the because I said so argument. And that's what he's actually saying to Anne Hutchinson, who is a really highly learned theologian. She's a better theologian than he is. And so he was reduced to because I said so. She says, okay, I'll stop. And then what does he say? You know, so he says, all right, let's talk about something else. I mean, that's actually what he does. Let's talk about something else. Um, but it's this kind of, he really can't, I mean, there's at one point it would she, um, uh, you know, this is kind of one of my favorite. I, w- I should, I should have all these quotes in front of me, but they are talking about, she's talking about teaching people. And she talks about how you have examples in the acts of the apostles um, of people teaching, of women teaching people. And sometimes of women teaching men, um, that they are part of a they're part of a group that's teaching a man or doing this, and and she cites and she cites a couple of things or she you know she cites several, and he says we, you need to he says in, in arguing for your teaching you need biblical you need to give us biblical example a biblical support for this, and she says I have given you two examples do you need to see my name written there you know and this. 
so what does he say? Enough. We're your judges, not you ours. And we say, you know, you got to see, you have to stop doing this. I mean, so he gives her, she gives him the argument. The very, it's not even a sophisticated argument. It's really basic. Here's a chance. Here's an example of women doing that. Here's an example. And he doesn't like it. So he says, stop it, you know, stop it. Because he doesn't, he can't argue against that. Um, and I think that's, I think it's a marker of his weakness as a theologian or as a thinker. Um, and the fact that he's getting entangled in the trial that he set up for her. Um, he wanted it to be easy. He wanted everybody to support him. And they, you know, mostly they do because he kicked out everybody who would oppose him. Right. All these men who would have supported her are gone. And she, and even and he's and so you have all these ministers except for one. He even kicked out one of the ministers that would support him, her brother-in-law. Um, but the other minister, you know, John Cotton is still supportive of her. Um, and he, you know, he has to. Um, so he but he just needs to just shut this down and get her out of there. I should also think I argue I, I have argued that. This whole when I said they kept her in uh, in a in the house of a of a clergyman a negative clergyman for the whole winter and then they nattered at her all the time I think the reason that they did that was to get Cotton on their side and they and they succeeded in doing that um, when she is brought to trial by the church and they start accusing her of all kinds of other things and she's and she is sort of confused about it. Um, or she seems to be confused and she says, why are you asking me all these things? I didn't hold any of these beliefs before. I thought we were just having private conversations. I thought we were just talking and suddenly everything she said is being brought forward. And it's all about, I think, mobilizing John Cotton to be on their side and opposed to her because they need, they need to keep him there and they need him to turn against her. And that becomes the, and that actually is successful in the end. Um, when he hears what everybody is saying. And and even then, she's not excommunicated for heresy. She's excommunicated for telling a lie, you know, because you lied. So you, um, so you go. I mean, again, they're reduced to that um, because none of them can argue that sophisticated theology that they're accusing her of believing. And, you know, she says, I didn't even think these things beforehand. And they all go, well, that's a lot, you know. But she didn't because she hadn't thought of anything before they started asking her questions about these things, you know. And uh, and the other scandal that I think is there is that these guys are all there having private conversations with her, and suddenly it all becomes public. And so she's she is banished and then excommunicated because because of public statements she's made, except that she hasn't made any of them public. They have made them public, and then she's and then they go after her. Um, so again, this is the the dynamic that you see, which, to my mind, it, it's an it is an indictment of them, but it's also a statement or a testimony to how incredibly powerful she is um, as a thinker and as a as a religious leader. I mean, she must have charisma. She must have this incredible spiritual power um, that frightens these guys. Because they are, you know, they spend a lot of time trying to, trying to completely, you know, stomp her down. And they never succeed. I mean, after she's in Rhode Island, they go off to the community and they start inviting people back. And the people out there are saying, ah, oh, no, no. And it's not even, be I mean, it's not necessarily about her. 
I mean, they just, they like not being under the, under the arm of that government anymore. They invite her husband to come back. You know, we had never had anything against you. And she, he says, uh, I think I'd rather be with my wife. I mean, that's his statement. But, you know, that's what, they, that's what their theology says, that husbands and wives should be together. So this, this dynamic, this effort that they have to really crush her down is, is remarkable. And it's something that I, I, am, I, I have been fascinated by, um, but also fascinated as the mark of her power. And it's why I'm really fascinated by the Puritans. It's one of the things that actually pulled me back into the Puritans. Because, um, you know, if they really were a patriarchal society that didn't care about women, a woman preaching on the street, they'd just ignore her. Why bother? Nobody's listening to her. Nobody cares. That she's a trouble, that she's a problem. That's what's remarkable about this community. Um, I was really interested. Uh, there's a point about midway through the book. Uh, where you really focus on both uh, religion and reproduction uh, as it relates to women's lives. Um, I think based on our conversation so far, no one's going to be surprised by the focus on religion, but I think some readers and listeners might be surprised by the focus on reproduction. Uh, can you explain why this was such an important part uh, for Anne Hutchinson and women uh, like her at the time? Well, reproduction is important. I mean, birthing is important because it's a woman's space. It's the one space that women can absolutely control. Men grant that they control it. Um, and the men don't really want to move in. You do not yet have efforts, at least in North America, you don't have efforts of men trying to get into the birthing chamber. Um, in the 17th century, male midwives are beginning to you know, exert some splash and dash but not in North America. And people are very men, people are very uncomfortable about the idea of men being in the birthing chamber and women really protect this. And so you have a lot of women who are there. They have a skill set. They have, um, and they have a, um, a whole culture that revolves around birthing. All right. To the extent, I'll just add, there is a, a very, um, it's an interesting incident uh, of a woman midwife and she is brought to account in Massachusetts because she's had so many deaths while she has been involved in birthing and they begin to ask and the men begin to hold her accountable and they they want to put her they put her in jail because she's because she is you know not skillful and she's killing infants and the women all want her out and they start and they start a campaign well at least let her come out to us while we are um, in childbirth, and then she can go back. And that's when you go, uh, what? She's, a lot of children, infants die under her ministration, and they are asking for her? What are you missing? You know, what are you missing here? Well, what they are missing is that she is the most highly skilled midwife in the community. That was established. Um, and the women all know that, and they want her because of that. And she is called for all of the most dangerous birthings because they need that skill set. And so of course more children, more infants die when she is there because they were at the risk. So you, so you have this dynamic and that's an interesting um, set of um, exchanges that happen with the men because the women, women just yell at them. I mean, they write petitions and they send things in and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You know nothing about this. Um, you should pay attention to us. But I think it's part, the other thing that I think matters, so it's, it is a part that women have authority, but it's also part of what puts women 
much closer to God because women die in childbirth. They are, you know, and this is the primary source of women's deaths after they reach, you know, after they reach the age of 20, after they have moved out of childhood. Um, and it's one of the things we talk about, you know, Massachusetts is a very healthy place to be in the 17th century. People live into their 70s and 80s. People live to see their grandchildren become adults. Nobody ever did that. I mean, nobody did that. Now, in Virginia, most people die before, they're, before their children are adults. They die in their 40s. Um, or even their late 30s. In, in England, they die in their late 40s or early 50s. In Massachusetts, they don't die until they're in their late 70s. And one of the things that we that is sort of the commonplace to say is that women, if they survive childbirth, live into their 80s, into their late 70s or 80s, but they have to survive childbirth. Um, and so there is this, every woman, I think, has probably knows or has been a witness of a woman who died in childbirth, knows that this is always a possibility. When women, women who are expecting children, they write things and they write, they'll write um, letters to their unborn child or things. And we have these because they were published and they were published because the woman died in childbirth. And so, you know, a member of the family, the husband or some sort of gathered these papers and then published them. But so women are, so this is part of what is matters about reproduction. It's not just the power of reproducing um, and the ability to bring children into the world and the importance of that for people, but it's also the fact that women are in constant, um, you know, they're in a constant, you know, reach point of death, if not their own death, someone else's. Now, if Anne Hutchinson was really in the birthing chambers throughout Boston, I mean, she was, you know, witnessed at near-death experiences all the time. And if you think about childbirth as a near-death experience, um, you know, then it, it, it sort of place, it places the whole thing in a, in a different framework um, as we go. Because apparently, you know, it's, you don't just have two children. You keep having children until you pass beyond your ability, until you pass through menopause or until you die. I mean, what kind of a... You know, but this is partly why this matters, and it um, and it enlivens women's uh, and spirituality in a way that we don't, I think, these days even really understand. But it's something that you see throughout the 17th and 18th and early 19th century is childbirth really being a part of women's spirituality because of the nearness of death, and they're aware and they do know that. I mean, they don't lie to themselves about it. They do know that this is happening, and if they don't die, their friends die or their sisters die. Um, some women even were present when their mothers died um, giving birth. Um, you know, they were, they're 22. They were their mother's firstborn, but their mother dies and at the age of 45, you know, giving birth to what, a 15th child or something. Um, I want to make sure we get to an argument that you make uh, towards the end of your book. Uh, you make this interesting uh, connection between religion and sexuality. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? And how that um, that framework or uh, that connection helps us to understand Anne Hutchinson's story. I think this framework too it helps us to understand um, why uh, this culture appeals to women more than men. Um, when they describe their connection with God, we're back to the revelation, but it's 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 deeper than that. They describe themselves as having an intimate 
extraordinary connection with God and what that is about and what that feels like. It apparently is extraordinary. It's extraordinarily exciting and pleasurable. And they feel infused with the divine. They talk about themselves as being filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, being in touch with God. And, and the language that they use is the language of sexuality. Um, heterosexuality, often marital sexuality. But, the, you know, the, at this point, and this is in the early, like before, I'd say 1650, 1660, they describe God as their husband. Jesus is my bridegroom. Um, you know, Jesus is coming. Jesus will sweep me up. They talk about being ravished by God. Ravished by Jesus. Well, ravish is like a synonym for being raped. I mean, being taken up um, and, sexu you know, and sexually enclosed with God. And this language is, this is a, I think this is a language, well, this is a language of pleasure. I think it's the only language that they have um, or the primary language that they have to express what their relationship with God is like when it happens, when it occurs. And it is the goal. Uh, people talk about the Puritan conversion experience and, and what the conversion is. And they don't mean the way we use conversion today, which is you are offered a point of view and you actually change something. Um, you become a different kind of Christian or a different you have a change in your political views or stuff. Um, you're converted to a new way of looking at things. No, they talk about being, they talk about conversion as being brought into God's world. Um, and they, and their whole idea of how this, what this can, they know what this conversion looks like. They actually lay it out in a linear fashion. And when you tell people, and they testify to these conversions, one of the more entertaining things about Puritans, if they know what it's supposed to look like, and if you get it wrong, they ask you questions until you've got it right. You know, so you say this happened. This, and when did you first realize that Jesus died for, you know, so this, so they, they do, they set this all together. But when they, in their own words, they talk about being swept up. They talk about being embraced. Um, they talk about the love and they use the sexual language. And, you know, I, I don't, we could argue, well, this is the language that they have. This is the language. This is their, the language that they have for pleasure. But I do think there is something physical in their being that is going on. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know why or how it is that they are experiencing this, but they are having some kind of physical experience um, that is that is drawing them in and that is exciting them in their relationship with God. Now, if the re if this is a description, if this relationship is constructed in terms of sexuality. It is constructed in terms of heterosexuality. Jesus, God is always male. And this matters, um, you know, because in 150 years before, there was language about God being female. They talked about God as a mother hand. Um, Jesus is bringing all of his chicks in. I mean, this kind of, you know, a mother eagle soaring, taking care of her young. But, but when you get into the, the Reformation era, God loses a lot of this the female imagery. They don't talk about God as a mother anymore. They talk about God. God is always male. God is, God is a father. Yes, but God is also um, the husband, the bridegroom. And, you know, and if you think about that, bridegroom is a much more exciting term than husband. Um, he is coming for me. He is coming at me. He's coming to me. And they they have lots of 
There's poetry that expresses this, um, written by men as well as women. Men in, engage this language, and it's part of what makes the I think the Puritans really interesting because you because men have to like give up their maleness in order to have this relationship with God. They have to you know sort of surpass their maleness because the soul is female, and so they experience God as female. But then they have to be very male. And so you have like this community that's in having masculinity crisis all over the place because they have to prove how male they are, even though in their relationship with God, they're female. And this is, um, this is a, uh, you know, I make this argument. It's a tricky argument to make um, because uh, it makes many people uncomfortable. But I think that, I mean, I do think that for many people, and, you know, mystics talked about this all the time. They talked about being swept up by God. They talked about having um, a deep relationship with God. If you talk about your spirit, if you talk about yourself as being penetrated by God, I mean, you know, last I looked, that's a sex, that's sexual language. Um, but, but then someone would say, no, 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 penetration could be other things. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's this, it is this sort of, there is this sexualized language because this is the language that they have. I mean, I would say, I mean, that's an easy way to brush it off saying, well, this is the language that they have. They don't have any other language. Uh, I don't think so. I think this is not only that this is the, this is the language of deep pleasure and they are taking pleasure in God. And if they're going to take this pleasure in God, then they have to grant that others can have this level of pleasure in God that women can have. And women seem to be more open to this than men. Um, you know, they don't have to overcome anything about who they are. Um, this is what their life is like. And then this is what, you know, the male God, what their relationship with God is like. But by the time you get to the end of the 17th century, if you're following my argument, I see that um, God stops being a bridegroom for a lot of these guys and God becomes only father. And when God is just father, then if I'm a man, I'm more like God because I'm male and a father too. And a woman can never be like God because she is female. And so you begin to see a different sense of who God is and what my relationship to God is um, in terms of how like God I am, which also seems to me, a, a, you know, a perception of supreme um, arrogance, but we won't go there. Um, but it's, it makes everybody, it makes them feel more comfortable because they don't have to worry about having this deep connection. And I argue, as I say, the world, the word they had, they had and lost, um, they lost this. They lost this deep connection with God when they had to, in order to stomp down people who were um, claiming authority, claiming power, in order to stop people like Hutchinson. Um, or like we, what we call the mechanic preachers, these guys who really have no right to, to be speaking the word of God because they're not highly educated like me. Um, when you, in order to do, in order to do that, you have to give up this connection with God. That is a loss. That's a real loss, and that's the pattern. That's the pattern that I see over the Puritans. Um, and I would say for those uh, for those people who actually still work in New England and. Um, their attachment to Perry Miller, um, who, despite the fact that this book, you know, is now 70 years old, is something that anybody who does Puritan studies has to look at. His book is, 
Miller's book is from colony to province, and he has this whole argument how Puritans started out so idealistic and committed, and then they moved away, and they were less committed and less committed, and then they suddenly became more secularized and modern stuff. And uh, I used to think I used to disagree with that. Um, I thought I saw all kinds of arguments for their continued commitment, and there is a continued commitment. But he's also right; they lose that, they lose a lot of that um, deep excitement. Um, that's there. And Miller doesn't, I think, understand what that is. Um, and if he does, he never articulated what it was. But I think it's tied in with this um, sexual relationship with God that they can't have. If you want to have authority, you can't have that. Because that is sharing authority with anybody who can have that. And, you know, people in authority don't want to share. And the Puritans finally ended up there. They didn't start there, but that's where they ended up. Suddenly I'm in authority and suddenly I don't want to share it anymore. Um, and gosh, it changed my relationship with God. Um, and that, you know, I look at that, that was a real loss for them. Um, what are your hopes for, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what are your hopes for this book? Um, is there a conversation that you hope it will create or change about Anne Hutchinson and the Puritans, both groups that, that have been studied and looked at before? I know, for ad nauseum. I hope that people, I hope it will change um, or will deepen people's understanding of Hutchinson um, and also of women within this community, um, that they will understand the space that women had in this community. And maybe some people who think about religion will, will look at the question of this, of space within space to find um, roles that normal, normally you would not have. And so that, that's one of the things that I would like, I hope that people will begin to see um, and understand the power of charisma. Um, charisma has become something that's uh, have a growing interest to individuals. They're trying to figure out what is charisma? What makes it? How do you work at it? And getting tired of um, Weberian discussions of that, um, that, that, that charisma is X or Y or Z. And I think that uh, we're still at a place, though, when, when the only way we can identify charisma is by seeing it, watching it. Um, can we recognize it when we see it? Um, and so that becomes so that's something that I'm hoping that if they look at Hutchinson, they will see that she's she's more than a bright mind um, who, you know, who basically brought Puritan leadership to its knees. They finally had to throw her out as the only way to control her because she could not be controlled. But do we, can we be brought to a better understanding of how charisma works um, and how it impacts the leadership of individuals? And I hope that it can, we can get to a better understanding of the spaces that are made for women. Because religion is, um, for many people, you know, for, especially feminist historians, religion is like a dirty word, and I've never understood why. Um, because and I would say, well, they actually they, my understanding came to the place where that's because they don't get it, they don't see what's going on in religious communities. Um, but religious communities are, you know, this is a place where women, ex you know, entertain huge authority. They're leaders and they're recognized as leaders. And they find themselves they find themselves with, not with just recognition but with power. I think it needs to change. One of the things I hope is that it can change our or broaden our sense of what power is and how power operates within a community. Because if you have a community where religion matters, um, 
you can certainly see the power of someone who is a highly skilled and a highly um, charismatic uh, person, whether they're a woman or a man. But also, you can begin to see how this might work, even if the community is not religious. Sometimes the religion brings this kind of authority to individuals. Uh, I, you do see more and more people moving in this direction as they look, trying to understand how charisma operates because they themselves, they don't like grant charisma. Um, but we're still, I think we're all still trying to, um, to understand how to spot it when we see it. One of the things that became clear to me uh, about it is that if we're trying to, I mean, Hutchinson's obvious was obviously a charismatic individual. But in part, the charisma is reflected in the fact that we are still talking about her, even though she's entirely unimportant to anything that is going on right now. Um, and yet we still talk about her and people still talk about her. And she's the one that they know. Do they know about John Winthrop? No. Do they know about John Cotton, a very smart and gifted theologian? No. They know Anne Hutchinson. Well, I, that seems to be a mark of charisma. And I'm not even sure how then, you know, is it simply evidence that she had it? Is it evidence that she still has it? Um, but, you know, this kind of, you know, I just think we're in the earliest stages of recognizing how charisma works and how it operates within a community. So it would be nice if that can, if we can, if I can push, we can push people in that direction as well. Um, on that note, and we've, we've discussed uh, here and you discuss in your epilogue, um, some of the ways that Anne Hutchinson has either been remembered or misremembered. Uh, how do you think she should be remembered? What's the correct way to remember her? I would think that the correct way is um, something that I said before. I, I should have used language like, could have, should have used language like this, and I, I didn't. But to, as a charismatic figure who actually brought her society to its knees, um, did they get rid of her? Yes. Um, did she? Yeah. And, and did they have pleasure in doing that? Yes, they did. And that's one of the things that is just horrible about them. Um, they write her about her being killed um, in an uprising um, by the indigenous community as if she's personally responsible for that. Uh-huh. Uh um, so but she is sort of in that pathway and they but all of that, that's is far less important than the fact that um, she actually had these, you know, people were still talking about her, you know, long after she's dead. And they have to talk about their relationship with her and the fact that they conquered her, um, which apparently they didn't since they're still talking about her. But I think if we can, I would like people to come away with the sense that here was it that the power that she, the power that was there that she had, which brought her community to its knees, brought the leaders to their knees. Um, and then she led people leading people out and her many some of her followers were loyal their whole lives um you know mary dyer possibly she didn't talk about her much she was mary dyer was kind of self-absorbed um but william coddington you know one of the leading you know who's ever heard of william coddington one of the leading uh colonizers in boston in the 1630s a follower of hers left when she did, left when she was kicked out, and ended up being governor of, of Rhode Island when it was a colony. Ended up converting to the becoming a Quaker when, as soon as Quakers were around, um, but still writing about her. I mean, he wrote this glorious piece. It was an attack against Massachusetts as they were persecuting Quakers, but it brought her back too, and it talked about her again. 
So that to have this kind of impact on individuals long after you're dead um, is something that we really need to respect about individuals. I mean, we do it all the time with male leaders. Um, and it's sort of that they hold something, they hold a place in our, um, in our imaginations. I'd like, I think that she should have a better place in people's imaginations, but it shouldn't be for something she did not do. I mean, you know, she is not, you know, I guess, again, she's not a proto-feminist. She wasn't a women's rights activist. She might have been, but, you know, that wasn't up there and that wasn't a possibility. What she was, was connected with God. And since we don't care about that these days, um, she doesn't get remembered for that. Um, but if you remember, if you if you go back to what mattered to her, the fact that she was connected with God, and everybody thought so, um, and this is the thing everybody did think so. Then you begin to have a sense of really the power that she had, and the power that can be that she could um, utilize, and um, is evident not only in what happened to her during her life, but in the way she was remembered. Because in a sense, with every historian, um, these nineteenth-century historians. She is placed in the space of what matters to them, right? So that um, to be to said that she's like Descartes, and you go, what? How? Um, but Descartes mattered to him, and so he placed her there. Um, you know that this is so that to place her within, she's remembered in terms of in the terms of that they have for people who are deeply important in the construction of the culture, um, and so. You know, I think that that is something we have still, but also it, it's nice if you, you know, and this is the historian me, can you, can you really have a sense of what the culture was where she lived and then how it was that she, that she prospered and flourished there. And the fact that everybody, that many people thought that uh, she was, that she prospered and flourished um, and that she was gifted. Um, not just by intellectual things or um, by her personality, which is how people often define charisma, but she saw herself gifted because she was gifted with, through a spiritual connection at a time when spiritual connections mattered. Uh, well, Lynn, uh, thank you so much for being on New Books in Women's History and for this wonderful conversation about the passion of Anne Hutchinson. It was a pleasure to get to speak with you uh, today about your work, and thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for having me and talking with me about it.